Good evening, everyone, uh, and welcome. Uh, I'm David Hempton, Dean of the Divinity School, and I'm really delighted to welcome you to campus this evening for a discussion of the um, important changes occurring in uh, US religion and the impact they're having on our uh, politics, our culture, and on civil society. Uh, last year I spoke in uh, uh, Europe and Asia on a topic that was much on the minds of citizens there and frankly also here in the Northeast United States, namely evangelical Christian support for Donald Trump. When I did those talks, I drew partly on the research of Dr. Robert P. Jones, one of our guests this evening. In 2011, the Public Religion Research Institute, uh, PRRI, the organization headed by Dr. Jones, asked Americans, quote, whether a political leader who committed an immoral act in his or her private life could nonetheless behave ethically and fulfill their duties in their public life. At that time, as Jones has written, only 30% of white evangelical Protestants agreed with this statement. This was not a surprise. White evangelicals had for years been the most likely group to say that a candidate's personal morality bore heavily on their performance in public office. PRRI asked the same question again in 2016 with the presidential campaign in full swing. This time, 72% of white evangelicals, uh, that is as against the earlier figure of 30%, said that they believed a candidate can build a kind of moral wall between his private and public life. That sentiment carried into the election that November when around 81% of self-designated white evangelicals, uh, which is a complicated category, voted for Donald Trump, the most weighted vote of any American religious constituency and a big factor in his election. It was, as Dr. Jones chronicled in his book, The End of White Christian America, which is where we had the title for tonight, um, plagiarized, um, it was, as he chronicled in his book, <laughs> a shocking reversal, one driven by a sense among white Christians that their way of life was at stake, that America's best days were behind it, and that the 2016 election was the last chance to stop the country's inexorable decline. But while the country may or may not have been in decline, it's clear from data collected by Dr. Jones and the Pew Research Center that both the white majority and formal affiliation with Christian denominations were in decline and are in decline. These trends go far beyond the phenomenon of Donald Trump's election and presidency. They help shape our politics at all levels, including the surge in support for nativist and right-wing movements, not only in the United States, but also across Europe. According to our other distinguished guests this evening, the Washington Post journalist and distinguished political analyst, E.J. Dion, this surge is the product of a constellation of factors that include globalization and technological innovation, growing wealth inequalities, migration, cosmopolitanism, and the decay of traditional cultural values. As a result, the narratives um, uh, on the right and the left 
reinforced by the rise of information outlets that affirm rather than challenge the beliefs of their audiences, you can watch this any night, are now almost impervious to countervailing information. People get their information tracks from their preconceived um, positions. Few write more cogently or insightfully about these factors than our two guests tonight. Um, E.J. Dion, uh, as the co-author of the recent book, One Nation After Trump, uh, this book, um, uh, takes heart in the activism inspired by the current political moment and offers a hopeful vision that's often lacking in discussions like these, sadly, even on university campuses. This would be a good moment to silence cell phones. <laughs> um, um, it's a nice ring, though. <laughs> it's a nice ring. Um, so, um, yeah, so do, uh, do get your hands on this book if you get a chance as well. These two books are uh, terrific reads. Um, and um, this one has a, both a, a great guide to uh, explaining the election result but an even better prescription for where we might go from here, which is more unusual. Um, uh, so um, it is uh, well worth reading. Um, so as someone myself who studies history, religion, politics, I'm very anxious to hear what our guests have to say this evening and perhaps to ask them a question or two. Um, we're really delighted you've made time in your schedules to be with us. Thank you so much for traveling uh, up to Boston. Um, so without further ado, uh, please join me in uh, giving a very warm welcome to our two very distinguished guests, E.J. Dion and uh, Robert P. Jones. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I want to begin just by saying what a joy it is to be back here at the Harvard Divinity School. I uh, taught a, a class here um, last semester called uh, Religion in America's Political Conscience and at the Ballot Box. And it didn't strike me until after I named the course that I had separated the conscience from the ballot box, although that might be revealing. And I just want to say it is a particular joy to have some of my wonderful students here tonight. Uh, my brilliant TA, Axel Tokach. Thank you, Axel, for coming. And I understand there is a rabbi, uh, Joseph Telushkin, in the room. Are you here? Rabbi Telushkin. Um, he may be here. He is uh, a brilliant rabbi. He is also the father of my brilliant advisee, who's a student here, Shira uh, Telushkin. Some of you may know uh, Shira. And I'm really honored to be here with my friend Robbie Jones. Um, Robbie and I, we've done work together now since 2010 uh, on a whole, on a, a variety of aspects of American politics, including back in 2010, uh, on the overlap of the Tea Party and the religious right. Uh, and uh, we had a lot of fun with that study because a lot of people thought that the Tea Party was a separate libertarian wing of conservatism, when in fact what we discovered is that a majority of Tea Partiers also thought of themselves as part of the religious right. And about three quarters of Tea Partiers had views that were on uh, social and religious questions that were essentially indistinguishable from the religious right. But Robbie has been um, a real pioneer uh, in this area uh, for uh, a long time, even though he's very young. Uh, and um, what I want to do is just invite Robbie. I'm going to go sit down because 
Robbie does many things well, but I think Robbie is by far the best PowerPointer I have ever met in my life. And I could just sit and watch Robbie PowerPoints for hours. It won't be for hours, but this book is very, very important. And after Robbie's finished, uh, I am going to read a section in the book about Billy Graham, who, as people, most people here know, uh, uh, died uh, this morning. Is that correct? Or was it last? It was this morning, I think at 8 o'clock. Um, and Robbie has some very insightful things to say about Billy Graham, but also his death is um, a sort of um, a, a bittersweet reminder of the era that Robbie writes about and that in some ways um, is passing away. And so uh, we're going to start with his PowerPoint. We're going to talk a bit about Billy Graham's role and then we will uh, take it from there. Uh, but you are about to see a real treat. <laughs> oh. I always hate when the bar gets set that high. Uh, okay. Um, uh, but uh, thank you uh, so much, uh, Dean Hempton and Harvard Divinity School. Paul. Oh, I did. Could I oh, say good. one yes. thing? Um, I love David Hempton. And what I was thinking as he was speaking is that if Robbie Jones had written his book about David Hempton, uh, the book would be called The Joy and Wisdom of Irish Christianity in America. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes, a little less somber uh, than this title um, up, up here. Um, well, I, I'm going to give you just a, a little bit. Uh, I want to have a, lo a lot of time for EJ and I to talk. It, it's, it's really a great joy to be here with, with EJ. We've worked together now for almost a decade, and our offices are just down Massachusetts Avenue. Uh, in Washington, D.C. from each other um, within walking distance, so it's fun to be here in Boston, uh, just right across the table uh, instead of down the street uh, from, from one another. Um, so I'm going to start with just this photo here um, that you've been staring at a little bit, maybe subconsciously, as we're sitting here before I show you some numbers, because I think it sets the table fairly well. Um, so I uh, received this uh, in uh, 2012, just after Barack Obama's re-election uh, bid. So between the election and Thanksgiving, I received this uh, photo. And just under the photo, it said, uh, Christian Family at Prayer, Pennsylvania, 1942. And so I haven't doctored it. It was black and white in the email that I uh, received it from. And I, and I kind of saw it. And I was curious. And I looked to see who sent it. And it was sent out by the Christian Coalition of America, uh, right, which is a conservative Christian uh, organization. It was part of the Christian right movement um, in, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and sent this out, and I thought, oh, that's curious. I'll read on down. And then um, I came across this language uh, in the email, and it said this. It said, we are um, soon to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the first Thanksgiving, and God has still not withheld his blessings upon this nation, although we now so richly deserve his condemnation. Let us pray to our Heavenly Father to protect us from those enemies outside and within who want to see America destroyed. So this is the message that we get just days after the re-election of our first African-American president um, uh, to, um, to the presidency. And it occurred to me that this apocalyptic language um, was telling me something, right? So I, I immediately saved it and said, okay, this is, an, I really need to think about this some more um, and kind of hung on to it and been thinking about it. But, but I think this sense of this we, we heard a lot of it in the 2016 election, too, but it has a longer history of this kind of apocalyptic ring that the America that we uh, know and love is over. And I think one of the things going on is like, why this photo, right? So what, if you look at it, what is it, right? Um, it, it's, it's a white family at prayer. 
Um, you'll notice there's a father at the head of the table, right? Um, so it's a kind of patriarchal, hierarchical image of family, um, and all kind of bowing their heads. And it was really standing in, in that email for America, right? White Protestant America is equals America. Um, and I think that's what's going on. And a lot of our debates, I think, are really over that. Like, is this the image of, of who America is and should be? Um, or is it not? And that really, that fundamental question, I think, is a lot of what we're wrangling over. So I'm going to show you some numbers about how much things are changing and I think how that has uh, set the stage for the anxiety, the fear, the anger that is so animating our, our politics, uh, both at the national and even all the way down uh, to, the, to the local level. Um, so first, I'll just, we're going to throw this term around a lot, so I thought I would unpack it just to make sure we're not misunderstood. Um, is this term white Christian America is a term that I just coined because I needed a way to talk about um, a, an era, right, and, and this sense of dominance. And it really is a, a, a word that refers to the, the dominance of white Protestant America um, that really held a lock on cultural and political power uh, for most of the country's life. And so when I'm, I'm using that term, um, it really is uh, this sense of this kind of cultural and political dominance of a world that was built mostly by white Protestant uh, America. Um, so uh, I'm going to give you uh, a bunch of stats here, but um, in case people don't are not big numbers people, you can think of them as vital signs, right? We're going to kind of look at the chart of uh, kind of white Christian America, see how, how its health uh, is doing. Um, the, if I had only one chart to show you, and I'm going to, um, I know EJ, EJ will be relieved, I'm going to show you a few more than one, um, uh, but it would probably be this one that would give you just in one chart a sense of the demographic and cultural changes that we've experienced in very recent history, right? So I've got the Obama presidency, and these are years across the bottom. I've got that kind of grayed out in this box. So you can see the kinds of changes that happened just during uh, the last um, uh, decade and, and really largely across uh, President Obama's uh, term in office. So this first line up here is the percent of Americans who identify as white and Christian in the country. Now this is any type of Christian, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, non-denominational, you name it. If they identify as white, non-Hispanic, and Christian, uh, these numbers capture that. And you can see if we just go back to the beginning of Barack Obama's presidency, there's been a fairly dramatic drop in the number of white Christians in the country. When Barack Obama entered office, the country was safely majority white Christian country, 54% of the country uh, identified as white and Christian. By the time Obama leaves office and we get the 2016 election, that number has dropped to 43%. So that's 11 percentage points across eight years time. That's more than a percentage point a year. Um, it's, a pretty, it's a very steady and very precipitous drop. So that's kind of one thing, just demographically speaking, the country has crossed from being this kind of majority white Christian country to a minority white Christian country. Um, and then here's another line that's kind of just a bellwether cultural issue. This is support for same-sex marriage uh, in the general population across the same time period. And one of the things you'll see is, again, if we go back and use the beginning of Barack Obama's uh, uh, presidency as a marker, only four in ten Americans supported same-sex marriage back in 2008. Barack Obama himself did not publicly support uh, same-sex marriage in 2008. But by the time uh, uh, Obama gets out of office, it's, that has been flipped on its head. It's six in ten. Uh, supporting same-sex marriage, only four in 10 opposing it. Uh, and our last numbers from 2017 actually show that number jumped again in 2017 to 66. Um, so it's now two-thirds of the country that supports uh, same-sex marriage. And so if you are a conservative white Christian, right, these numbers, just these two, are 
constitute a kind of sense of cultural vertigo, I think, where you've gone from a country that you recognize and, and a country that you sort of feel like you can lay claim to being in the mainstream and even being the dominant cultural force to one where that is no longer true. Uh, and it happens in a very, very short amount of time. So let me unpack this just a little bit more. Um, here is, um, if I do big boxes of religious affiliation, the pie chart of what American religious affiliation looks like uh, today. That's that same number, 43% of the country in blue here as identifying as white um, and Christian. Uh, this 24% box is um, those who identify as uh, non-white and Christian, so mostly African American and Latino uh, Protestants in the country. The 7% is those who claim uh, some other religious tradition, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, etc. And the 24%, that big block of orange up there, are Americans who claim no religious affiliation at all uh, today, about a quarter of Americans uh, who are religiously unaffiliated um, in the country. So that's a snapshot of where we are uh, today. One way of seeing how dramatic um, these changes have been is just to look at the generations who are alive today and what the generational cohorts look like. Um, so you can think of this chart, um, I'm, I, I like to think about this as a kind of archaeological dig down through generational strata, right? So we've got the young people on top and we've got seniors uh, down here on the bottom uh, and we're going to put up, um, the first number we're going to put up is just a percent within each generational cohort that identifies as white and Christian, I think you'll immediately see the generational change and how quick it's happened, right? Just the generations that are alive today. We'd go down to seniors, two-thirds of seniors identify as white and Christian, but if we go to youngest Americans, age 18 to 29, that number is only 25%, right? It's, it's more than twice, more than a factor of two uh, between seniors and young people, and you can also see that it's actually a fairly linear uh, generational stair step here. You could take a ruler pretty much and draw a straight line, right? So it, it's very, very consistent. Um, the younger you are, the less white, the less Christian you are. The older you are, the more white, the more Christian uh, you are. And if I put up the other uh, divisions on that same chart, you can see the patterns emerging. And the biggest thing is the bookend on the other side, right? The religiously unaffiliated in the country. If you go to seniors, only about one in 10 seniors claims no religious affiliation whatsoever. Uh, but if you look at uh, young people today, it's nearly 4 in 10 who claim no religious affiliation, 38% uh, today. So again, it's a factor of 4 on that, on that measure uh, here, um, a little more than 3, not quite 4, a little more than 3 um, on that measure. But very, very dramatic changes. You can also see the green there, uh, which is non-white Christians uh, in the country. And among young people, for example, there are as many, or there's actually slightly more non-white Christians than there are white Christians in the youngest cohort. Uh, of Americans, whereas um, among seniors, you know, there's nowhere near uh, that kind of parity. So that's the kind of um, quick change that we're seeing um, in the country uh, today. And just to kind of, uh, we, I haven't said a lot about Catholics, but I wanted to put them up here too. Uh, this is a, a phenomenon, and we're sitting at, at Harvard Divinity School, uh, broadly speaking, a part of the kind of mainline Protestant uh, tradition, the kind of more liberal Protestant end of the spectrum. Um, and for a long time, the narrative has been that the more liberal end of the Protestant world has been where all the decline has happened, right? And that white evangelical, more conservative churches are thriving. That has largely been true until the last 10 years. And then in the last decade, what we're actually seeing is um, slightly steeper declines among white evangelical uh, denominations than we're even seeing among white mainline denominations. But the overall story is uh, that if you're white and Christian, whether you're evangelical, mainline, or Catholic, uh, the trends are essentially the same. Again, this is not a very long, this is only a 10-year 10, 10 window here, um, and you can basically just see the patterns uh, are the same among every white 
uh, Christian uh, subgroup in the country. But the new thing here is really this decline among white evangelical groups from 18%, <clears throat> uh, uh, sorry, uh, from 23% down to 17%. Uh, percent. That's genuinely new in the country. They have been sort of stable or even growing uh, prior, to the last, uh, prior to the last 10 years. Um, so I'm going to stop there. Uh, we can kind of come back to this other part, but I think that, that lays the land, of, uh, gives you the lay of the land in terms of uh, just the demographic and religious uh, change um, that has really hit us um, in the last few decades, but very much so in the last even 10 years. I think that explains a little bit about why this feels uh, like a fight to the death among some quarters, particularly the conservative end of the white Christian world. Wasn't that awesome? I, I love his PowerPoints. Um, before I turn to um, Billy Graham, I wanted to ask you to take apart the um, white and the Christian part, because I think that um, there are a lot of ways in which your stark title could be read by people. And I think these charts make clear that there are two things going on here simultaneously. Uh, but they, in a way, they are quite different things. Um, on the one hand, the country is getting more diverse, and so those numbers simply on non-white Christians by generation shows demographic change. But the rise of the religiously unaffiliated, among the, particularly among the young, is in some ways, I think, the biggest religious story uh, in the country. When you have uh, nearly 40% of the under 30s uh, being religiously unaffiliated. That's not, by the way, uh, well, young people are always less religious because this cohort of young people is far more unaffiliated than any of the earlier cohorts. I mean, this is a real change over time. Can you talk about sort of those two? Now, if you're sitting there as a conservative white Christian, um, the, both changes may alarm you in different ways. Um, but, but they are quite distinct. Could you talk about those two separately? Yeah, so one of the things that really um, I got me on to writing the book in the first place was uh, the sense that we had this narrative out there that the Census Department has been giving us for quite some time, that by 2050, the country, uh, it's a, the original projections that caused shockwaves were when the Census put out a press release that said, our current projections show that by 2050, the country will for the first time be a majority non-white. Right, and they caused a lot of headlines. Uh, since then, that number's been revised down to 2042, um, uh, so as the demographic changes have been accelerating a little bit. That, but that's just race and ethnicity. Um, that has to do with birth and death rates and immigration patterns, right? And if you put all that together, that's what we get. Um, but it occurred to me that um, the alarm bells that I was hearing, I think, were not fully ex explained by people looking that far out on the horizon and thinking, okay, well, in 2042, something's going to happen I don't like. Uh, but there was something already happening uh, in the country. And it's when I think you put these two things together. So you have this kind of you know, engine that is racial and ethnic decline uh, that we're getting steady reports from the Census uh, Bureau. But I think what really turbocharges the cultural changes is this um, really exodus uh, from, of young people from traditional uh, religious affiliation. And so it's a kind of, you know, here's the engine, you get this kind of turbocharged effect, though, I think, from the religious disaffiliation. Uh, because most of, those, most of the kids were actually raised uh, in churches, right, and then left. Um, now, they leave mostly before they're 20. Uh, so they do leave quite early, but they were still, most of them today, still raised 
um, religious, leave by the time they're 20, and uh, by all measures that we have, um, very few of them look like they're coming back. Uh, and as EJ said, even if we had um, every generation is slightly more unaffiliated in their 20s than they are later in life as they get kids and a mortgage and settle down, uh, but, uh, but even if we get a kind of traditional kind of coming back uh, to religion, this will still be by far the most religiously unaffiliated generation that we've ever seen, by a factor of three. The other piece that I'd love you to discuss is the change in the nature of Christianity. And you're from Mississippi uh, and sort of know this story better than most folks, that the, the changing nature of Christianity itself as uh, Latinos, in the case of both Catholics and Protestants, evangelicals especially, uh, and African-Americans and Latinos in the case of Protestants primarily, uh, become a much bigger part of the cohort of believers, um, which is certainly, uh, I think, having over time some real effect on the Roman Catholic Church, where the, what, the, the Catholic numbers, as you show, would be much worse in terms of disaffiliation without Latino immigration. Um, and African Americans, um, even though there are a lot of non-affiliated young African Americans, have tended to stay more affiliated uh, than uh, white people. What does this do to the nature of Christianity in the country? Yeah, well, the Catholic Church, I think, is really fascinating um, because, you know, there is uh, this ethnic change is happening all under the umbrella of the same denomination, right? So you're not, what happens in the Protestant world is typically you have these parallel denominational tracks where the African-American denominations are kind of over here in their own denominations and churches and uh, Latino denominations over here. There's, there's not, still not today, um, about 86% of our churches are essentially monoracial churches today. There's still not a lot of multiracial congregations uh, in the country, particularly in the Protestant world. Uh, but what's happening in the um, uh, Catholic world is really interesting that we're, like in the Southwest now, there are more non-white Catholics than white Catholics in the Southwest already uh, today. And we're looking at um, now, it used to be, like as recently as the 1990s, the ratio of white to non-white Catholics was 10 to 1. Uh, and today it's about 60-40, um, and we're headed toward parity. Um, uh, to give you an idea of, of what the kind of white Catholic exodus looks like, 12% um, of Americans today are former Catholics, uh, right? And th most of those Second are or third largest uh, denomination, if they were, <laughs> the denomination. denomination, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> they're a smaller group than former Catholics. Yeah. Um, the, um, a friend of mine is in a parish, a Catholic parish that has become very Latino, and a friend of his was complaining about the shift in the ethnic makeup of the parish, and he said, what do you mean, where's the life? Our people have funerals, their people have baptisms. Uh, and um, the, he, was, he was for the change in the church. Let me read what Robbie wrote about Billy Graham, which is really, it's, uh, it's particularly, um, it's, it's quite powerful. He talks about Billy Graham at mid-century having an open-handed, inclusive style that really went against uh, the very defensive tendencies in the evangelical world after the Scopes trial, the failure of prohibition. Uh, although his wild success might suggest otherwise, Reverend Graham entered the national stage at a deeply uncertain time for evangelicals. In the 1950s, uh, mainline Protestantism was the unchallenged public face of white Christian America, but the young Billy Graham almost single-handedly reconfigured evangelicalism into a force with the power to shape the national consciousness. 
Uh, the most prominent example of Graham's influence was his historic crusade in, of all places, that's a good Mississippians line, New York City. Uh, uh, the Big Apple was not uh, only the sophisticated cultural and financial center of the country, but it also housed the headquarters of the mainline Protestant National Council of Churches and its flagship educational institution, Union Theological Seminary. This is amazing. For 110 days in the hot summer of 1957, Graham drew crowds averaging about 18,000 people per night to Madison Square Garden. After the first night's success, the New York Times devoted nearly three full pages of coverage to the event, even printing Graham's service, a sermon word for word. ABC News broadcast 14 Sunday night services, Saturday night services from the Garden, reaching an estimated audience of 96 million viewers. When he preached at Yankee Stadium, Graham set an attendance record of over 100,000, and more than 20,000 people uh, were turned away. Um, then you go on, and here's where I want you to pick up the story and relate it to the theme of the book. But by the 1980s, Billy Graham's welcoming and largely apolitical appeal was overtaken by a movement built around partisan politics and apocalyptic rhetoric led in the 1980s by figures such as the Reverend Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson. As the elder Graham aged and health concerns began to limit his public appearances, his son Franklin, whose temperament and goals resonated more with the religious right than with his father, stepped increasingly into the spotlight. It would be difficult to overstate the differences between father and son. Talk about Billy Graham, if you would. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think um, it is that I think Franklin and Billy Graham do represent kind of two different eras, right, in the white evangelicals' life in the, in the country. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting that Billy Graham is this kind of rare moment where um, white evangelicals did kind of come into their own, felt fairly secure uh, in the country, um, and it wasn't a defensive posture. There wasn't a lot of fire and brimstone. There was a kind of this deep invitation to come and be, you know, be part of the uh, Christian life. Um, he was uh, one of the first people to desegregate uh, services, uh, refused to hold rallies uh, in the South where they were segregated, asked uh, Martin Luther King Jr. to come and uh, offer an opening prayer at some of his crusades um, in the 1960s. So, I mean, this is, you know, a, a very different kind of posture um, as well and, and was sort of, I think, university, universally loved by Democratic and Republican presidents alike, I mean, that, who, who he held counsel with all the way through. Although he did um, try to defeat John F. Kennedy in 1960. That's true. Yes, that's true. Uh, kind of and, Protestant and Catholic, that, yeah. Yeah, and that for the Protestant, our, our friend Sean Casey has written a wonderful book called The uh, Making of the First Catholic President, 1960, where he documented some of that. So it's just yes. a side I want to Fair enough, to, yes. Um, uh, uh, but but it's a different. Yeah, Massachusetts very different Catholic. I am. I could not. <laughs> I had to keep me on back some up. Catholic narrative, yeah. Um, but it's a very different posture, right, for him. Um, so just a little aside. I don't know if I. I so I, I worked for Billy Graham in, in the summer of my uh, high school senior year, um, uh, and so I actually met him because uh, I, I I got a. Um, so I grew up Southern Baptist uh, in, in the South in Jackson, Mississippi. And I got a call right after my senior year um, asking if I wanted to go work for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association for three weeks in Amsterdam. <laughs> I thought, sure, uh, right? So, uh, so I mean, I, you know, I got overnighted a, uh, a plane ticket and a reservation at the Amsterdam Hilton at uh, just, just barely turned 18. 
Um, and I spent three weeks uh, in What Amsterdam. else did you do in Amsterdam? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, we'll leave what happens in Amsterdam in Amsterdam. Uh, but uh, uh, but, but it, I remember being struck even then. I mean, I'd seen him on TV and stuff, but being struck even then at you know, this sense of, I mean, here was in Amsterdam, right? Not exactly the evangelical capital of, of the world. And, um, and, but he packed the place out night after night, and his message was not a kind of condemning, you know, the sinful city. It wasn't any of that stuff. I mean, it was this very open uh, and warm invitation. I remember being very struck by that, um, even as a very young, uh, young kid. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, then we have, I think, Franklin Graham, who uh, maybe, you, you know, has, was very public in this last election in support for, uh, for Donald Trump and uh, very critical of, um, of President Obama uh, as well, very critical of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and very much just kind of in lockstep with the Christian right movement, which has a very, you know, like a harder edge to it, it's defensive, it, it's embattled, um, and I think we do have in Billy Graham's um, death uh, today in a kind of passing of an era of a very different kind of posture when evangelicalism, I think, was much more sure-footed and much more sure of itself um, I think, in a way that today it's very defensive and I think a little um, anxious. Um, could I, could I, I I'm yeah. just curious, I, I, this is, I've known Robbie for a long time, I never knew this side of him, um, <laughs> the Amsterdam Graham side. Yeah. Um, the, um, you, went to sem you went to Baptist Seminary, can you talk about just the influence he and his style had on you personally? Yeah, uh, so I mean, so I, so I grew up Southern Baptist, I, um, I uh, did a uh, mathematics and um, computer science degree at a Baptist college in Mississippi. Then I went to, uh, being the good Baptist boy that I was, went to a Southern Baptist seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, a Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So at the time, uh, Southwestern was the quote unquote like moderate seminary um, that while the, while the SBC was in the turmoil of a, this sort of um, denominational takeover that was connected to the political Christian right movement. Right, so this, this was part of my, my last semester at seminary, actually, was I, I literally watched the transition from what felt like this kind of, you know, non-defensive and open-handed um, uh, kind of evangelicalism that Billy Graham had been um, modeling to this more hyper-political, partisan, and kind of hard-edge thing, where my last semester of seminary, um, while we, the students were all gathered in chapel, uh, the trustees met in secret, fired the president, locked the doors, uh, locked his doors with his personal effects inside, and escorted him off campus with armed guards. Right, that was while the student body was sitting in chapel. Um, and I remember thinking, like, okay, yeah, this, I'm seeing this very, you know, you couldn't be more stark than that, juxtaposed um, right together. And, then, and after that, the, the seminary changed direction. Um, a number of professors left, some were fired. Uh, so we're passed over for tenure. Um, so you know, the whole face of the, of the institution changed after that. And could you talk a bit about something you, you and I have talked about a lot, um, which is how politics, in a way, has come to trump religion uh, among a lot of people. Alan Wolf, of, of, who taught at BC and ran the Boise Center there for many years, um, really caught me up short one day. And he was absolutely right when he said, you know, religion isn't really important to politics. It's that politics is becoming important to religion. People don't argue about the Nicene Creed. They don't argue about the virginity of Mary. They don't argue about religious questions. Uh, they argue about social and cultural questions linked to politics. 
And that when you think about the uh, Trump margin over Hillary, 81% to 16%, as I recall, the, Trump got the highest percentage, higher than George W. Bush, of the white evangelical vote of anybody since we've been recording it. Um, this really does suggest politics trumping um, religion, and that finding that David quoted is probably maybe the most quoted finding in PRI's history, yeah. uh, where uh, before Trump, uh, the personal life of a politician really, really mattered. After Trump, the personal life of the politician really, really didn't matter. And just to put a line under it, the change in that number was much starker among evangelical, white evangelicals than any other group in the country. Um, can you talk about that? And then maybe show one more, my favorite slide, if you've right. got it, um, um, which is the end of the white Christian strategy, political strategy. I don't strategy. think I've got that one uh, up, but I can but talk you about can it. Describe um, it. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, uh, so, so just to kind of put that number, it, it, I think it literally has been the most quoted number we've ever put out. Um, this, and what we did, just to kind of remind you, um, Dean Hempton laid it out pretty well, but just to remind you, we asked in 2011 uh, this question about can someone uh, ha uh, behave immorally in their private life and still behave morally in their, and perform their duties in their public life. The number w in 2011 for white evangelicals was 30% agreeing with that statement, that someone could do that. Uh, by the time we get to the last election cycle, it's 72%. So it's a 42% percentage point swing. You just don't really see that kind of swing um, in numbers like that. So when you do see that, you know that something's really going on. But we have, we have a, I mean, what, what's interesting about it is if you look back at the voting patterns, um, really the last four or five election cycles, what is remarkable, and I think what really goes to this point about how important political affiliation has become for religious identity, is that you hardly see any movement, no matter who the candidates are, right? So you can kind of go back election cycle after election cycle. So white evangelicals, for example, vote about eight and 10 for Republican presidential candidates, no matter who they are. Now think about this. Mitt Romney, Mormon candidate, Donald Trump, uh, John McCain, George W. Bush. Right? These are really different candidates, right? And the needle hardly moves. Um, what, so what really matters is who the Republican Party put forward. To be fair, it's true on the other side as well, right? So the Democratic candidates looking very different, uh, and the numbers don't move. The most consistent voting group uh, in the country, though, that is dead on the nose are white mainline Protestants uh, who vote um, about 40, who vote exactly in the last uh, three election cycles, 44% for Democratic candidates, right? 44, 44, 44. It doesn't move at all. If um, you look at the chart, it looks like a satanic number. It looks like 666, <laughs> six, six, yeah. you know, it's 44, um, 44, 44. <laughs> but but the, the real realignment, again, it's a racial story here too. The real, yes. the, the, I mean, you've pointed this out, right, um, in, your, in your previous book um, very eloquently that, um, uh, that it really is this shift in the civil rights movement, right, where the Democratic Party became associated as the party of civil rights, and that, that spurred this kind of white, uh, like uh, my great book is, uh, is called The Rise of the Republican South by, I love this, it's two twin brothers, Merle and Earl Black, who are both political scientists, one at Emory and one at Rice uh, in the South, and um, they wrote this great book, and what they, they called the great white switch that really happened um, between the civil rights movement and it really capped with Reagan. By Reagan, uh, there was this real sea change in Southern white party affiliation. And along with that went white evangelical party affiliation. It was really part of that same, uh, part of that same swing. And so ever since then, we have seen this 80%, eight and 10 
uh, support for Republican candidates, no matter who they are um, in the country. Um, and it, it's, it, it's just kind of a mark of our, of our politics now. We saw the same thing in Roy, with the Roy Moore election in Alabama um, as well. Um, white evangelicals, again, with a very unorthodox candidate for a group that's kind of you know, branded themselves as values voters. Uh, and uh, basically what we saw in Alabama was that uh, 78%, I think, of white evangelicals in Alabama voted for Roy Moore, uh, which is right in line with their typical um, voting for Republican candidates at the state, at the state level. Let me ask you, uh, press you on that, because I think you make um, an important point there that um, I've, I've struggled with this myself, that we have started talking about white evangelical Christians as a voting block with the rise of the more majority at the end of the 70s and in 1980. Um, but in fact, the people we are talking about, the very same people, really made their journey to the right into the Republican Party because of civil rights. Mm -hmm. Um, and even some of the issues connected to the religious right were actually racially tinged, such as the um, IRS cutting off, um, uh, cutting off tax benefits to white Christian schools that were essentially being used as segregation uh, academies. Um, and interestingly, Jimmy Carter got the rage, but that, that was actually started in the Nixon administration, uh, the move against yeah. those uh, schools. And so sometimes I've asked myself, um, did we put a, just a religious overlay on something that was actually simply racial, or uh, was there a distinctive religious aspect that entered into it um, in 1980? And this doesn't sort of deny that these voters are and think of themselves as very religious. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, these trends, as you say, began long before anybody was talking about either the more majority or the Christian coalition. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this lately too. So I, you know, like I said, I grew up in the South. Um, my, my family from five generations back is from Macon, Georgia, uh, but I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, but what I think has been um, interesting to me is as someone who grew up in that environment, um, there's a story that you get told from the inside right, of these churches um, that has nothing to do with race, absolutely nothing, right, despite the fact, so uh, one just key point here, um, so I, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Convention, I did not know that the Southern Baptist Convention was formed in 1845 uh, because of a pullout of the Southern churches who wanted to support uh, sending missionaries who were slave owners, right, and there was a rift between the Northern Baptists and the Southern Baptists in 1845, the Southern Southerners said, we're gonna, we really do think it's fully consistent with Christian values to, for a missionary to own slaves uh, and really pulled out and formed their own denomination. I didn't know that was the history of my own denomination until I went to seminary and took a Baptist history class when I was like 21. Um, like, so that's how sort of anesthetized that, that narrative is. Um, and I, I think that one of the things uh, that's sort of also coming out is trying to like, re-understand that history I think is really important. And it's a task that some churches are taking on, um, but, but I think it's also important that that invisibility itself, right, was a powerful racial tool in the South, right? So that, that it actually became, the, you know, uh, there's this um, uh, great, great book uh, that's uh, called uh, uh, Sanctuaries of Segregation um, that's about Jackson, about my hometown, uh, in 1963, 1964. 
Uh, and it really was this kind of combination of the governor, the mayor, and the central pastors of the Methodist and Baptist churches that were all aligned to keep not only the public facilities segregated, but first and foremost, the churches segregated. Because they saw if the churches, if the segregation fell at the church level, that would be the domino that knocked everything else down. So it was actually quite important um, that uh, socially that the, um, and, and for cultural power, that the, that the white Christian churches remain segregated. So I think this has been a racial story kind of all the way down that just isn't told uh, very well. Let me, I want to invite David to come in uh, here. Um, I just want you to uh, sort of give a word, a, a verbal picture of that chart I like so much because <laughs> what I, I just, so you know, the reason I like this chart is because it really showed how radically different uh, the Obama coalition was and really still the Democratic coalition is now from the Republican coalition if you sort of crossed race and uh, religion. It's a very different. So it's basically uh, a version of this chart. Um, yeah. But what I, what I did in the other chart is um, I overlaid um, the Obama and Romney coalitions um, and kind of fit them into where they would fit in the generational cohort as a way of kind of explaining where the two political parties were in terms of race, religion, and generation. And what it basically showed was that um, uh, in 2012, that the Obama coalition looked about like 30-year-old America in terms of its racial and religious uh, break. The Romney coalition looked about like 70-year-old America in terms of its racial and religious uh, composition. And what we're seeing now, even if we just, and that was vote, but even if we look at party affiliation uh, today, the Republican Party um, 10 years ago was 80%, um, 81% white and Christian. Uh, today, the Republican Party is 71% white and Christian. Ten years ago, the Democratic Party was 50% white and Christian. Today, it's 30% white and Christian, right? So we're now looking at uh, the two political parties who are increasingly uh, being polarized by race and religion, all right? So that we're, you know, we're on a trajectory uh, where we'll end up with a, a basically a kind of white Christian nationalist party uh, and then everyone else uh, over here. Um, and I, I, that's something I'm actually genuinely worried about, is that drift that we're seeing in party affiliation in the country. And that what that means is that only one party is creating a multi-racial, uh, multi-religious coalition, um, which may create incentives for the other party to create certain forms of division. That's A. Yep. But B, it creates enormous coalition management problems inside the Democratic Party because a big part of the shift is in the rise of the seculars, of the non-affiliated. And so, the, I mean, I think you saw it visibly in the Hillary Clinton campaign where that campaign was very torn about how to present her religiously uh, because here was this very religious uh, Methodist uh, woman for whom Methodism was central, who one understands was discouraged to some degree by her campaign from talking about that because the more secular vote was, uh, turning out the younger, more secular vote was critical, right. they thought, to her success. Could you sort of elaborate on yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, the other thing I'd point out is that, I mean, I think this, this creates problems for, you know, uh, because we only have two political parties, it creates problems for both, actually, yeah. because the other piece of this is that um, it creates, I think, incentives for the Democratic Party to be home to everyone except white Christian voters. 
right? And that, I think, also is a really unhealthy dynamic because all of a sudden white Christian voters become the enemy. Like, they're the other guys, right? They're not in our tribe. And I think this kind of tribalism uh, uh, thing is, is a real, uh, real danger, I think, for you know, our, our politics today. David, I wanted to give you the first set of questions. Oh, I thought, you, I thought you wanted to come. I heard you saying that you wanted to yeah, come in. No, I, I will be happy to give you a night off. There are a couple of things I would be interested in. And so we had a presentation here a couple of months ago by a young scholar at Calvin College um, who, um, as well as putting a, a race slant on this, um, um, put a, a strong gender slant on it as well. Uh, arguing that um, uh, really from the Vietnam War era onwards, uh, there was a distinct creation of a kind of evangelical masculinity mm. that came around through you know, patriotism, um, support of the military, um, support of um, you know, um, patriarchal values in the family, uh, support for the police, um, uh, and so on down the line, and, and being also quite resistant to um, uh, feminism and pressure from that. So it's another, as well as the other pressures on, you know, pushing this constituency um, uh, further to the right. She uh, made a pretty compelling case, even through the popular literature of the evangelical constituencies, of how this kind of, you know, constructed masculinity uh, became also a part, and that would be true right through a range of things, maybe even over guns as well, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe the second thing I'd ask you to comment on is that um, it seems to me that, um, uh, that the evangelical constituencies I know are, are kind of against, a, a, you know, liberal elites of all kinds, you know, whether it's activist judges or um, uh, the liberal media, the Ivy League universities, Hollywood, um, like a whole bunch of things that they, they feel a, a kind of a concentrated attack on their values from, uh, you know, just a liberal elite broadly conceived. Um, so those are two things maybe mm -hmm. to add to the mix a little bit that I'd be, be interested to hear your, your, your views on. Okay, great, thanks. Um, you can jump in here too, BJ. Uh, um, I'll take a stab at the gender one. Um, that, that first image that I showed uh, with the family at prayer, I don't think is coincidental, right, that it had the most prominent figure in that photo is the patriarch sitting at the head of the table. Um, uh, we have like some antique furnishings in our house. Some of you may have uh, this too. We have a dining room table from the 1940s um, in our house and it seats uh, one, two, three, six. Um, and there's only one chair that has arms. Right, um, and it, it was literally built into our furniture, right, um, in the 1940s and the 1950s. This sense of uh, where, and, and it's called the captain's chair, right, and that's where the father sits at the at the head. It only fits at the head of the table. It won't even fit around the side. It has to be on one end um, or the other. And there's a chair at the other end too, but it doesn't have arms, right? It's just as one. Um, and so I think it's like literally built into our, you know, the fabric of our culture and our architecture. I mean, it was it was there. Um, and so I think that's been a part of it. And the other thing I, w I guess I would sketch is it's, it's, it's part of a bigger kind of hierarchical worldview, right? Um, where um, uh, gender uh, is kind of a very clear conception. It's black and white. Uh, there's men, there's women, each know their place. There's parents and there's children. 
um, you know, there, there is this real order, kind of ordered hierarchical world. And I think it's the breakdown of that's, and it's whites over blacks. It's like, it's very clear. Everyone knew their place in the pecking order. And I think it's the dissolution of that sense of uh, space. And particularly if you're on the top of that pyramid, right, it, you feel that very decisively when, when it starts to crumble. Um, and I think that's part of um, what's going on. And so that's why the gender piece is, has to be part of it, um, I think. Um, in the uh, in the construction here, and then the um, the other piece was remind me the um, liberal elites across the board. Yeah, um, I mean that's certainly been there. It, it's um, I mean I, I certainly had people for my you know just to make it from a personal example, uh, you know uh, the way it works is your local church will uh, in, in the Baptist world uh, licenses you to the ministry on your way to seminary as kind of an endorsement from your local congregation as you're heading off to seminary. Um, and, you know, there's like a reception and that sort of thing. And I, I certainly had at least two people, you know, come by and give me the don't let seminary ruin you um, speech. You know, um, there was kind of that sense of things. Like, don't, don't you lose your faith at seminary, um, right? Turns um, out I lost my denomination at seminary. But, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, with the way things fell out. But, uh, but I think there is that that, that has been there. Um, and I think it has been this kind of embattled South. And again, it's, 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 it has a kind of racial tinge to it, right? That, you know, this, uh, everything from the war of Northern aggression uh, instead of the Civil War to Confederate flags everywhere to Daughters of the Re American Revolution putting up monuments here, there, and yon about the Civil War. Um, all of those are kind of markers, right, of kind of a world kind of gone by, I think. And I think that's why I think this I really think Trump's campaign, we haven't really talked about this explicitly, but I do think that Trump's campaign slogan is kind of make America great again, right? It was that last piece that had more power than anything else. Yeah. Uh, and on the home stretch of the election cycle, I mean, he was really leaning on that. I mean, he was literally saying, I'm your last chance, folks, mm -hmm. right? If you don't vote for me this election cycle, you will never see a Republican like me in your, in your, in your lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, it was kind of just naming the demographic changes, like I'm your bulwark against the change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a paradox on women on, on, in this area. On the one hand, if you overlaid women into some of these charts, especially women have been um, tilting more democratic than men since 1980. Uh, that's really when the gender gap started opening up with Reagan's election. Uh, in the country now, the gender gap under Trump is truly astonishing. Uh, and so that if you actually added women to these pictures, um, they would, the, you know, men would fall out into the, all these, you know, are a much bigger piece of the Republican, um, of the uh, Republican coalition. Um, on the other hand, uh, women are also the most religious people uh, are more religious on the whole than men. They are, you know, they're more likely to be believers, they're more likely to belong to churches and, and synagogues and, well, and especially churches though. Um, and they often take leadership roles, so not necessarily uh, always the formal uh, head, uh, but they play a very prominent uh, part. Um, one of the, Theda Scotchpole here at Harvard is doing a wonderful study with two colleagues, uh, Vanessa Williamson and I've forgotten uh, the other colleague involved in this, and they are looking at eight counties uh, in, I believe it's Michigan, North Carolina, uh, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, Trump counties in Trump states. Mm -hmm. And it's two Trump counties in each state, one more rural, 
one more exurban suburban. Mm -hmm. um, here's an interesting fact out of their study. They have found that in those eight Trump counties, there are, these are you know, pro-Trump counties, they have found 10 anti-Trump groups uh, that got organized. Um, two interesting facts about the leadership of these groups. One, every single one of them is either led or co-led by a woman. And many of these women come out of the mainline churches. Many of them have mainline church uh, backgrounds. Um, and obviously these are predominantly white areas that voted um, for Trump. And so um, on, on the one hand, um, you see a picture that of, of a past that had religion overlaid with patriarchy. On the other hand, you have very religious people um, who are the re very religious people being disproportionately women, many of them in leadership roles, uh, and many of them um, you know, out of mainline mm -hmm. Protestantism. And just one story from our class, we had a wonderful uh, Unitarian minister uh, in our class uh, from a para uh, his church was in Dallas. Uh, and uh, it takes guts to be a Unitarian in Dallas. And um, he said that after uh, Trump's election, his church just filled up uh, because it was known as an activist church. And I couldn't resist looking at our students and saying God works in mysterious ways. The purpose of Trump's election is to turn America into a nation of Unitarians. Could I respond just two more and then I will give up. Um, one is I, I did ask uh, Theda Scottsdale in those counties whether the, um, the non-college educated women who's you know, who split for Trump, like 62%, I think, wasn't it? Something like that. Whether there was any shift there in support for Trump. In other words, whether this was essentially college-educated women who were organizing against Trump, or whether there was any movement in that other constituency. And she, she said she didn't really know the answer to that question. She hadn't really gotten to it. But that, that's an interesting... Yeah. Um, the second thing, and I'll finish with this and take my night off, is, is really just to switch over to the Democratic side. and. Um, so I did read somewhere in the, in the, uh, in the reflections on the campaign that, um, that the Democrats were nervous about talking about religion, and one reason for that is that a lot of the young staffers on the campaign came from metropolitan areas and were simply inured to that language and weren't comfortable with it, and, and she wasn't particularly comfortable with it, so it just got... Uh, uh, uh. So my question about that is, um, given your demographics, would it be smart for the Democratic Party now to stay away from, um, from th those topics um, uh, with the assurance that things are moving in that direction with the younger generation? Or does the Democratic Party need to find a voice of how to talk about these issues the way that Hillary, in my view, was unable to do about her Methodist uh, roots and upbringing? So, w w if, if you were a democratic strategist, um, <laughs> um, which of those two options do you think would make the most sense? All right, so you're going to get me in trouble. This question. Um, I don't, do you want to take a run at that first, or do you want me to? Uh, I have a strong view on this, but, uh, but I've always, I've, I kind of want you to do it first. All right, all right I'll, I'll go. Or we'll uh, see. My view won't change, so yeah. I'll. I'll uh, <laughs> no matter how brilliant you are. Yeah. <laughs> So here's what's inter interesting. Um, if I gave this presentation in England uh, about the percentage of unaffiliated people in the country, right, 
the British people would be thinking, where did all those church people come from, right? Um, and, and because we're, we're talking about 24% of the country being unaffiliated, right? That means that three quarters of the country is affiliated in some way or another, right? And even among young people, we're talking about four in 10 being unaffiliated, right? That means that six in 10 are affiliated in some, in some way. And that's, it's a dramatic sea change for the US context as we have always been kind of the exception to the kind of you know, Western developed uh, world in terms of religiosity. Um, and so this is new for us, but I, th I think, you know, I, I, I'm of the mind, like the you know, parties certainly have to hone their messages uh, and kind of speak to their base. But uh, again, I, I, for my money, I think that um, it's a dangerous th game to play. I think if a political party decides um, we're gonna so tailor it to our base that we're not going to speak a language that still most of the country understands, right? And that, that is meaningful uh, for most of the country, even most young people uh, still. Um, and I, I think it's about how it's done. I mean, I think the kind of wearing it on your sleeve and sort of like, you know, slapping the, and this is actually, I think, been something the Democrats have been guilty of is because they're uncomfortable with it, what they tend to do is sort of slap Matthew 25 on a, as a bumper sticker on whatever the policy briefing is that they're you know, going in for. Uh, and somehow that makes it a kind of you know, faith-based kind of uh, grounding on it. But I think something is more organic. And I think, I think Hillary Clinton could have pulled this off, right? Because I've, I've been in smaller settings and heard her tell her story. It's not awkward. It's not, um, you know, doesn't feel contrived. I mean, and I, I think she could have pulled it off. But, and I think if it felt like it comes from the heart and it's not about, um, you know, it's more about who I am and what, what energizes me and grounds me as a candidate, I think that's something it's not going to be that off-putting, I think, to people, even for people who have a kind of deep suspicion of, of religion kind of writ large. That's my take. Um, yeah, th three, three points. One, I can't resist just this notion of this rising nuns under, you know, people under 30. Um, in a sense, the under 30 generation is becoming European uh, because we've always made a big distinction between church-going Americans versus non-church-going uh, particularly Western Europeans, but now pretty much Europeans uh, in general. Peter Berger, the great sociologist of religion, used to joke that uh, you know, elites were more secular and the mass of Americans were more religious. And he said that uh, India is the most religious country in the world, Sweden the least religious, and America is a country of Indians governed by Swedes. <laughs> um, uh, this is Harvard quip. quip. Do you remember his Harvard quip it's like, that we often mistake? Like that academics tend to mistake the Harvard Faculty Club uh, for the, the country as a whole. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so I just think that is an interesting development. Yeah. Uh, but point two is I personally think it was a disastrous error on the part of the Democratic campaign not to encourage Clinton to speak about Methodism and its role in her life. And I think we have a lot of examples in our history, but one in particular, uh, where a public figure could speak very clearly to secular people uh, while uh, often speaking in religious terms, and that's Martin Luther King. Um, and Martin Luther King's rhetoric was a brilliant fusion of um, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution on the one side, uh, and Isaiah, Micah, Amos, Matthew 25, and a lot of other, <laughs> parts of it on the other. And that I think that what's happened 
is, and, and I think this is very dangerous for religion. I, I, in the last two days, I've run into two people who, two women who said, I own actually quite beautiful crosses that I used to wear, and I don't want to wear them anymore because if I wear them, people automatically associate me with the religious right. Uh, and it is the um, association of religion with certain kinds of right-wing ideas, and particularly among young people, and particularly among gay and lesbian people, um, that turns off at the younger generation. And I think there was fear in the Clinton campaign, um, and particularly among the more secular young, that they would be turned off by this, and also that there's a lot of anger among um, younger people, again, particularly gays and lesbians, toward very conservative Christians whom they perceive as um, inimical uh, to who they are. But I don't see in this country, given what Robbie said about the 75%, uh, you know, um, not to talk to religious people um, was, a, was a mistake. And it was finally, in a way, the most authentic piece of Hillary Clinton. Anyone who's ever heard her talk about the role of Methodism uh, and why it uh, created this commitment in her to social justice, um, it's very believable because, as best I can tell, it's actually true. Uh, <laughs> and that's really helpful in politics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so I, I, and that besides which, we have this electoral college. And if you want to carry Michigan and Pennsylvania and Ohio and Wisconsin, I don't think you can just say, we can do it on the secular coalition uh, alone. I'm not for it. I wish we didn't have an electoral college, but we do. Um, who wants to... Uh, 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 please, you're right near the mic. Okay. Thank you. Um, my question, it's really about Billy Graham, but I have to set out a couple historical things that haven't come up. Um, in the 1920s, there was a rise of a nativist populism, and the KKK, funded by some wealthy Southern Baptists, really made a push to come into Southern New England. And my family's from Connecticut, and my grandfather, made a stand, a public stand that's memorable in my family about that. God well, bless that him. went on. I said God bless him. Yeah, yeah, for us, that's true. Um, it, that went on for five, eight years, and perhaps in the end, you could say, was really wiped out by the Depression, and then the World War. At the end of World War II, the churches of the world, the World Council of Churches anyway, really confronted the German churches, Lutheran and Catholic, and said, you did nothing. You let all of these fascists sit in the pews and feel loved by God, and you did nothing, and that's totally unacceptable. And American mainline denominations took that to heart. And in my own college graduate school era of the 60s, boy, everything was full of that story. In the 50s, just when this was really ramping up, Billy Graham stood up and said, hey, here I am. I'll give you all the cheap grace you want. Come on down to me. You don't have to do any of this moral stuff. And he cheaped grace his way to millions of bucks, and I would say really set up Franklin Graham to take over and take it one step further. So I'm having a little trouble today with all the uh, warm things being said about Billy on the radio, but my family <laughs> never liked what he was doing. 
I do think he saw, he's a good salesman, and he saw that he could sell what the others were no longer trying to sell. Uh, Go ahead. You, no, you, you work for Billy Graham. <laughs> I, I am actually looking up yeah. something on my little phone here. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting. One, the thing I would say that, um, that I, I resonate with in what you're saying is that there's a, there's a, a version, a, a kind of a, 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 an abstract version of this kind of personal relationship with Jesus, right, that runs deeply through evangelical life and through Billy Graham's speaking like that that's what's most important right is that you get your naked self right with God through Jesus it's this very like one-on-one -on -one kind of very personal thing uh, what tends to be missing from that right is the connection to social action and social justice um, now it's interesting to him he's a complex figure because he, he really um, you know, for the time, I mean, he was very clearly trying to, de like, he refused to hold rallies at some places that were trying to say you can only come if we have segregated audiences. He's like, I'm not going to come. Are we going to have it or, or we're not? Um, he was, at the time, you know, King, it's so worth remembering, was, was a controversial figure even in the mainline churches um, in the 1960s, right? Even in the African-American denominations, King, in many of them, King was a, a controversial uh, person. And Graham reached out, had him, you know, do the opening thing. So I... It's interesting that he was sort of doing that kind of stuff, but at the same time, I think one of the um, other ways I've been thinking about how evangelicalism sort of hid its racial history, right, is through this very personal view of Jesus, right, that doesn't connect to social action. And so you can be personally right uh, <coughs> with God, and you can see this over and over in Southern sermons from the 60s and, and, and before the Christian right got politically active. The, the trope was, that's politics, this is religion, right? And the two don't have anything to do with each other, but you can only really say that if you're at the top of the heap and the status quo looks good to you, right? Um, then, then that makes a lot of sense. Um, but but, uh, but that, that disconnect, I, I would say that's what resonates to me that um, is maybe the sort of weak point, I think, and, and what um, got reinforced at the same time he was sort of working to uh, desegregate things, propping up a theological uh, view that didn't have a lot of teeth to it in terms of racial justice. Got caught on yeah. tape with Nixon talking about the Jews. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate your question. First of all, I like the way you linked what you said with the first part because, of course, cheap gracing it, you are channeling Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who <laughs> was in the part of the German church that stood up to Hitler, and that was his phrase. Um, I was what I was looking up is Reinhold Niebuhr was a great critic of Billy Graham, and it was precisely on this point, and in a way, Graham could be said to have popularized the reaction to the social gospel among fundamentalists a long time uh, before. And so, on the one hand, it was a more open, less angry form of, um, you know, that evangelicalism was a less angry form of fundamentalism, and this was a less angry form of evangelicalism. So in that sense, the warm Billy Graham is a real story. On the other hand, at the root of that is a very, very conservative view of religion that did not have the social challenge in it, and that Graham, in the end, really was quite conservative. He was a very close friend and ally of uh, Richard Nixon's, for example. 
Uh, and uh, it was not a social justice uh, faith at all. Uh, and deeply anti-communist, yeah. which is a, is a big thing. Yeah, he, yeah. 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 Although, although in the 50s that was a fairly broad uh, canvas. Yeah. But he took it right to you know, the Bibles and, and yes. Syria and so, and so on. Like it was a major part of his platform. Yeah. So, I mean, your, your, your point is correct. I, I, I had a choice of writing a column on him this morning, and I chose, I, I let my colleagues do it because my feelings about him are, are complicated the way yours are. Uh, because I accept what Robbie says, but I also think that, that those are two sides of the Graham story that we just have to accept. Um, who wants to, um, um, who, uh, oh, the gentleman back there will come to you. Yeah, thank you guys both for coming. Um, one thing you said during the talk was that, uh, quote, nothing inside Southern Baptist churches in Macon, Georgia, has anything to do with race. And so I actually have an interesting story. My grandfather, his parents were Syrian Turkish immigrants, right? They moved in 1909 to making Georgia, right? So my grandfather was born the last of nine uh, Jewish kids, right? In a fam big family, right, in making Georgia. And when I asked my grandfather about what it was like growing up in making Georgia, you know, he said, well, Andrew, after dark, you know, there were no Jews, dogs, or blacks allowed on the street, mm -hmm. right? And so as a Jewish kid, looking up to my grandfather, right, the idea that race never existed inside of whatever happened inside of Southern Baptist churches sounds, uh, doesn't sound too right to me, right? And I, I also think that tonight we've talked a lot about white Christianity, but we haven't really, here at the Divinity School, we often wrestle with questions of justice when it comes to God, right? And if we think about this long arc of Christian decline that we've kind of outlined tonight, we also recognize the same historical period, right, represents tremendous increases in things like mass incarceration, right, destruction. I mean, white wealth over those period uh, compared to minority wealth has been astronomical, right? So we see the consolidation of white control over society, and we know that 53% of white women voted for Trump. Right, so I guess my question to you guys is, how does your approach take into uh, okay. the racial catastrophes, right? Over three million incarcerated folk today, right? Increasing, right? Deportations, how does that, uh, how does that not stem out of those same white spaces from the past, right, the, the rise of white culture. Yeah. Well, let me take the thing about what I said about inside white Christian churches. Like, I want to make sure I'm not misunderstood. I wasn't saying that narrative was true. I was saying it was being told, right? Um, and and I, so that, I think, is what's remarkable, is that I, you know, I could grow up, and I, and I went to church five times a week growing up. Like, I was there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night visitation, Tuesday night Bible study, Wednesday night uh, prayer meeting, right? That was my sort of schedule growing up. Um, so I was there all the time, and so I wouldn't have missed it if it was there, um, and it just wasn't there. I mean, there just wasn't a narrative uh, at all because, you know, uh, all white, there was, um, uh, you know, and it just, it wasn't ever a part, even when we were talking about our own history, like we had like 
you know, uh, Baptist training union, right, on Sunday afternoons, and that was the time when you talk about the denomination, and it just wasn't there, really. Um, not all the way back, it wasn't there in about the 60s, none of it was there. So I'm, I'm saying that there was, there's a, a literally whitewashed narrative, right, being told inside churches that I think hid the racial history of the denomination. That, and I think that's, that, that was a huge problem, and is an ongoing a uh, huge problem for, uh, and, and what's great, like Macon, Georgia is a great example. Uh, there are two First Baptist churches in Macon, Georgia. Um, they sit about 50 yards apart uh, downtown. Uh, one of them is African-American, one of them is white. They used to be one church, right? They split uh, during the Civil War uh, when it became two tents for slave owners and slaves to be in church together. Right? And so they gave permission for the African-American uh, slaves to go build their own church before they were emancipated. Uh, and then after the Civil War and emancipation, they continued their own church. Those churches have sat for 150 years on two corners of Macon, Georgia, uh, until uh, the last five years, they finally got two young pastors who kind of looked at each other and went, what are we doing, right? We're sitting here like, and they, they started doing some kind of uh, joint things between the two churches, but that's like the last five years Right, that has happened. It, it's a sort of long, long story. And, and I, your, your point about um, the Jewish community, I think, is really important. And it's part of this narrative. Um, yeah, in the 1920s, uh, huge anti-Semitic uh, stuff going on. And it's really important to remember, like, the KKK was a white Protestant organization, right? Um, it was shot through with Protestant Christianity. Um, it was anti-Catholic, it was anti-Jewish, and it was anti-black. Right, and, 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 and that is its history, and it, and it was propped up by white Protestant churches uh, all through the South, um, where, it, where it really had its strongholds. So I think remembering that, I think, is really important. Um, uh, we're hearing echoes of it even today in Charlottesville, right? We heard not just uh, uh, you know, stuff around race and kind of pride in the Confederate flag and that stuff, but they were chanting, Jew will not replace us, um, right, in Charlottesville, right? Um, so it's still, hovering there with us, even though attitudes have largely changed in the general public. And the rise of the KKK in the 20s that you referenced, and it was really powerful in some states in the North, particularly, they basically took over Indiana uh, for a while. Uh, on top of being anti-black, anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish, was deeply anti-immigrant. And it's worth remembering that the 20s uh, were when the toughest immigration law was passed by Congress, it was a kind of a backlash, not at all unlike the backlash uh, reflected in the Trump, uh, in the Trump uh, campaign. Um, I will, uh, uh, before we close, I wanna tell a, a very personal uh, Southern Jewish story, but I'm gonna wait till uh, to close with it uh, because <laughs> it's actually a, it's a warm American story about the lines of hatred always being unexpected. Uh, uh, but I want to just go to a couple more questions. The gentleman here, um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, here's the mic. Uh, thank you. Um, <clears throat> it's not clear to me um, a couple of statistical points. The, um, and then I have a larger question. Did a majority of white Christians vote for Donald Trump? Yes, I was, I was yes, afraid yeah. of that answer, yes. yes. And uh, the spike in, or the, the big shift the, the, in the statistic that you stressed most about how under Obama, uh, 
white Christianity shifted from a majority of the population to a 43% minority um, in eight years, uh, I suspect that that, that I'll get a yes to this statistical question too, that uh, that was probably the fastest shift of that kind in American history. Robbie's suggesting an, another yes. Um, I believe that's true. Yeah, I mean, it has been dropping like really since the 70s, but, it, but this 11, more than a percentage point a year is definitely more percentage. But more of that comes from the rise of religious disaffiliation than yeah. from racial change. That's why I was trying yeah. at the beginning to, in other words, you've had a very precipitous drop in religious affiliation among younger uh, Americans. And so yeah. some of that is racial change and immigrate because of yeah. immigration, but more of it is from religious disaffiliation. Yeah. The other point that I, I didn't talk about, that, but, but that is interesting, we were talking a lot about white evangelicals. Um, one of the reasons why we're seeing their, um, their drop is actually that um, fertility rates among white evangelicals have gone down. Um, and that's mostly because there has been an uptick in evangelical women getting college degrees um, over the last generation. And so we always know that's a corollary. So that's all this kind of you know, interesting kind of in the mix that, um, that, that that has lowered, that has made family sizes smaller. Uh, and then with the, you get smaller family size, disaffiliation of young people, the whole group starts aging uh, and declining. And that's kind of part of the, part of the story here. Um, so there are, a, yeah, this was my final, third and final question. So clearly there are a number of drivers of this 10% uh, drop under Obama that has made us, that has brought about the title of your book, The End of yeah. Christian, White Christian America. Um, well, you, so, and of course you, you've, you've just given us, both of you, a number of the drivers. Which of these driving factors do you think was the most important? And I'll yield. Yeah. Well, I think I think we, as EJ suggested, I mean, we, we've seen this kind of st steady and predictable racial and ethnic like drop. That's underneath everything. And if, I don't have I don't have the chart here, but if, if I showed you the curve of uh, uh, over time, the trends over time, the percentage of Americans who claim no religious affiliation, it starts in the 1990s um, and it's single digits in the 19, like six seven percent in the 1990s. It just starts upticking a little bit into the 2000s, and in the last decade, it just looks like a logarithmic like uptick. It just takes off, and so it is a kind of turbocharge, yeah, across the last decade, uh, kind of thing. And we we're seeing it like it ticks up like every year. I mean, it really is a measurable, you know, phenomenon. And, You're and up, the, here we come. Yeah, yeah. And, and just uh, uh, just on your point, you might ask the question, well, if these numbers moved in that direction under Obama, how in the world did Donald Trump win and the, win the election if those numbers are going this way? And the answer to the question is older people turn out at higher rates than younger people uh, is the single most important factor. Uh, and there was a slight downtick in African-American turnout yeah. from the Obama uh, election, but it's really that the that a lot of these numbers are driven by young people who undervote compared yeah. to old people, and so there was there may be one or two elections left, maybe yeah. in this coalition, um, but that even that is yeah. questionable. Uh, yeah, but it has to do with voter turnout, and if Trump how about um, turbocharges 
young people's turnout, then this coalition is basically finished. I think it's fair to say, although everybody's been saying it's finished for a long time and they've yeah. been wrong, so it's worth yeah. Uh, Can I put one uh, fine point on this real quick? Um, just to kind of spell this out, though, um, white evangelicals make up 17% of the population, right? So they've declined down to 17% of the population. In, this, in the Trump election, they made up 26% of voters. Yeah. Right? Of voters, right? So at the ballot box, they are nine percentage points overrepresented at the ballot box because of higher turnout rates relative to other uh, people in the population. Uh, our best projections are it's going to be 2024 before the voting population looks like the actual population looks like already. Um, yeah, that's so, a good, yeah. that's a good way yeah. to put it, yeah. I was gonna say the role of black women in the Alabama special mm -hmm. election for the Senate. Yes. I mean, that turned it against the evangelical candidate. Right, it was African Americans and it was young people. That the line that you draw across that vote is age 45, under 45 and under voted 61% uh, for Doug Jones. Over 65 voted overwhelmingly for Roy Moore. Uh, and then you had very effective organizing uh, within the African American community that produced a significant turnout. It's, it's always true, it's always been true in Southern politics that, that if you get a good African American turnout, and uh, a white vote of around, depending on the state, you know, the share only has to be around 30% of the white vote in Alabama and Mississippi, but usually for the Democrats, and it usually doesn't reach that, and that's why they keep uh, losing elections. But Jones had the twofer of um, a, a really good African-American turnout combined with that share of the white vote that rose, particularly because of younger people. It was right. historic that they turned out at rates un we've never seen. They outvoted African-American men and they outvoted white uh, men and women in terms of their rate of turnout in the, in the election. Although African-American women tend to always to turn out at higher rates than men. That, that's right. true for quite a while, but you're right. It was higher than whites yeah. Yeah. in the Alabama election. Yeah. Um. Oh. Thank you. Um, I think no, go ahead. Uh, thank you so much for the talk. This is really inspiring and very interesting. Uh, I want to shift to, um, I mean, Robbie, in the book you talk about, or sort of one of the very interesting things in the book is, is that you talk about, uh, you use three institutions, basically, to think through this decline or um, end of uh, white Christian America. And I want to go back to this particular idea. Most of, most of the discussion was obviously about the demographic change. But I want to ask, uh, how do you see the changes in the institution? And by that, I don't mean formal institution, but I mean the institution of, of white Christianity and politics. So, and this takes us to uh, David's comment about the presence or lack thereof of a particular um, sort of um, presentation of religion in politics in, say, the Clinton campaign or in democratic campaigns. And I want to ask, are we looking at the absence of religion in politics, or are we looking at the absence and the dismantling, if you will, of a particular mode of engagement between religion and politics that we probably can characterize it as white Christian American institution? And in, that, in, in this same line, and in a way, are we looking at a different kind of 
identification between religion and politics, between religion and race, that transcends what you described as this kind of invisibility of the question of race in sort of in the traditional white Christian narrative towards a mode that identifies the lines between the individual and the public in a different way. And in this same vein, um, just one last point, in relation to uh, AG's comment about MLK and his role or his narrative, uh, or his ability to merge political and religious discourse, I wonder if, again, we're looking at just a different language, that the calling on religious symbols here is not one that's come, that comes from a particular mode of power or privilege, but one that comes from a prophetic narrative that is part of the, traditional, uh, the tradition of African-American prophetic uh, religious expression, and that probably this is really the difference here, that we're looking at the disappearance of a particular mode of institution. So I wanna hear what you think about how this demographic change maps on the institution of white Christianity and politics and beyond that. Thank you. All right, I'll take a piece of that. Um, uh, so uh, thank you for bringing up the institutions though, because I, I, you know, this is like <laughs> nose counting uh, up here and, and I think the institutions matter. Um, so I've been, uh, for kind of the next project, reading a lot about like South and um, uh, Calvin Trillin, who's a, a great journalist of uh, uh, the civil rights era. Uh, there's a collection of his essays out in book form, um, uh, and the, the title of the book is the lead essay or, or the lead um, uh, uh, article in the in the takes the title of the book. It's called Jackson, 1964. Um, and uh, what's one thing that struck me in that book is that he talked about the civil rights workers that were on the ground in, in Mississippi throughout the Delta and then kind of headquartered in Jackson, that often their key media strategy was to get the attention of the National Council of Churches, right? And that if they could get the attention of the National Council of Churches, they, they then saw that as a conduit to Congress, a conduit to the New York Times, a conduit to the uh, Washington Post, and they could get national media attention, that was the conduit through. Um, I don't know anyone today who thinks like that's their media strategy is to get the National Council of Churches <laughs> on board, right? And, and it's just a, that institution has really changed. You know, when, when that was founded, right, I have an account of the kind of uh, cornerstone of the, um, uh, the big, uh, maybe probably been the God Box building uh, and kind of affectionately dubbed the God Box uh, that was at the time called the closest thing to a Protestant Vatican the world would ever see, right, when it was founded. Uh, the cornerstone was laid by President Eisenhower um, uh, and when it, when, it was, uh, when it was opened, there were 30,000 people that turned out for the opening of this building. Um, and it, it was kind of this kind of great gathering of the kind of mainline Protestant denominations uh, in the building. And there was this real sense of power, right? That it was going to be um, this uh, kind of uh, gathering and kind of uh, uh, reinforcing and guiding kind of power in a single direction. Uh, it, it, it very quickly sort of, you know, never quite fulfilled that purpose, but I, it's, it's notable today, it's still there, I mean, the National Council of Churches, but they've abandoned the building, they've now moved to D.C., uh, and they're sharing, actually, the Methodist building on Capitol Hill, which has its own similar story, right, as the largest Methodist building uh, on, and the only religious building on Capitol Hill. It sits right between the Capitol and the, and the Supreme Court building. And you look out one, you see the Supreme Court. When it was founded, they were raising money for it. Methodist women uh, uh, dubbed it a Protestant sentinel on Capitol Hill, right? It was right there to kind of keep an eye on things. They even built apartments so that members of Congress could live there uh, and share a cafeteria. They could rub shoulders with them on a daily basis, right, and kind of influence policy. Um, 
And you know, those buildings are still there and doing important work, but they don't have the kind of stature or influence that they had uh, in the 1960s. And I think that mode of kind of, yeah, we've got this big Protestant behemoth institution that everybody has to stand up and pay attention to. I mean, that era is also, I think, gone. I was thinking there would soon be Koch brothers condos uh, <laughs> uh, in DC, God help yeah. us. Uh, just two quick points. Um, one is I think there has been a tension throughout American history between prophetic religion and what you could call the alternative liturgical, you could call it law-based, uh, and that the African American church has always partaken of the prophetic. Um, and I've always found that you can, uh, if you're talking about talking to a Christian, um, you know which side they're on by whether they quote uh, Micah, Isaiah, and Amos or uh, Leviticus, and whether they <laughs> quote, um, you know, whether they quote the social passages of the New Testament or the conversion passages uh, of the New Testament. And and I still think you saw that. Uh, in the fight over slavery, you saw that uh, over social justice uh, issues at, in the progressive era in the 30s. I mean, we, you saw it in the civil rights years. I think that's a deep tension that's always running through American um, religion. The second is a set of cycles where religious questions are more or less central uh, to American politics. And we get accustomed to one and are shocked when there is a change. Um, and if you just go from 1928 to 1932, 1928 was an election saturated with religion, both because Al Smith was the first Catholic uh, candidate for president and because prohibition uh, and whether to continue it was a central question. Then all of a sudden, a funny thing happens on the way to 1932, uh, which is the Great Depression. And there's a great exchange between Jim Farley and the Democrats who are really torn by these questions, and particularly prohibition. And some Democrat in Missouri wrote Jim Farley uh, and said, I don't understand why wet Democrats, you know, pro anti-prohibition, fight with wide de dry Democrats when neither of them can afford the price of a drink. Uh, <laughs> and suddenly we went through a long period where public religion sort of was not as present, and then everyone was stunned when the Christian coalition came along, but really it was just a return to that uh, earlier pattern. Uh, are you Rabbi Talishkin? I want to welcome you. I, before you came, I welcomed you not only as a learned <laughs> scholar, but as the father of one of my very favorite students here, my advisee Shira, who is brilliant, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, uh, so uh, let's get the rabbi a mic. Uh, is, do we have, uh, is it where, oh, ah, thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I saw the, I, well, can you hold on, let me, I, I, I don't want to be gender discriminatory here, but I, mean, I was just so happy to see Shira's dad here that I, uh, uh, go ahead. Um, so this is, I guess, a measurement question and a broader question. Um, so within your category of white Christian, I'm wondering if you've looked at voting patterns and attitudes within or between different levels of religiosity. Yes. Because I know after the election, I saw some evidence that suggested that white evangelicals who attended church weekly or more or more frequently were less likely to vote for Trump than evangelicals who just kind of superficially identified as religious but didn't necessarily, that didn't manifest in any, in any behavioral measures. Um, and so I'm wondering if that's the case, how much work religion is doing here versus just some sort of 
white conservative ideology that has become linked to religion. Great. I'll just say one thing quickly and turn it to Robbie. What you just said, I think, was true in the primaries than in the general election. Okay. That in the primaries, the genuinely religious evangelicals were shift, voting mostly for Ted Cruz. And the self-identified um, evangelicals who didn't necessarily go to church were much more likely for Trump, to go to Trump. And you're absolutely right that in the second group, saying you're evangelical is a kind of cultural marker more than it is a deep religious commitment. Whereas the Cruz evangelicals really were the religious evangelicals, which is why Cruz uh, beat Trump in Iowa, uh, and part of why Cruz beat Trump in Wisconsin. Uh, so you're, you're right. In the general, I think, in, uh, as a general rule, uh, higher rates of church attendance produce higher Republican voting, although I think some of that is overlaid with age, uh, because age also produces higher Republican votes. Oh, so it's notable that we see this pattern repeated with, with Romney as well. Like uh, Romney's uh, favorability rating before he became the Republican nominee among white evangelicals is in the 30s. Uh, we measured like a month after he became the uh, Republican nominee, it was up nearly at 70%, right? So we see these same kinds of patterns and it's about partisan alignment, right? Once the candidate becomes the Republican party nominee, Evangelicals basically align their views. It's a miracle. It's church a, going or <laughs> church going or not church going, uh, they align their views with the Republican Party's uh, nominee, and that's what we saw in that uh, kind of character question. Favorability numbers look that way. Uh, if there's one group, though, I, I do want to. This is a great point to kind of insert this point is um, if there's one group that looked different in the Trump election, it was Mormons. Yeah. It's the only group that significantly looked different than, now they had Evan McMullen on the ballot, um, so in places like Utah that drained off votes, but it was the only group that really did move away from their typical support for Republican uh, candidates um, uh, in, the, in the last election cycle. And if you look at some of the more outspoken critics of Trump, you'll see this, many of them are Mormon. You'll see this kind of pattern uh, going. So I, I keep thinking I'm gonna write something about the real values voters. Uh, right, and, and I think pattern. there's something yeah. going on in the Mormon community about a sense of having been a, uh, an oppressed religious minority once upon a time in our history. And so even though there's obviously a very, very strong conservative streak uh, among Mormon voters, there is, a, there is still this sense of the, the danger of mistreating uh, religious minorities. Uh, by the way, I'm totally persuaded Romney didn't win the Republican nomination the first time because he was Mormon. And that's why Mike Huckabee, that's one of the central reasons why Mike Huckabee overwhelmed him in Iowa, which really helped derail his election. And there's no question that the first time around, uh, his Mormonism, I think, was very harmful with this constituency. Um, yeah, Rabbi, welcome. Thank you, and you could imagine to my wife, Devorah, and myself, the greatest honor is being identified as Shearer's parents. Oh, thank you. So thank yeah. you. It occurred to me that the issue, I think, with Billy Graham was he just was trying to spread a goodwill and, over, and went and depoliticized, because it's interesting, he was not only a disappointment in that way to liberals, George Will wrote one of the most devastating columns against Graham when Graham visited Russia and gave a speech in a church telling everybody in the church, your job is to be good workers for the state. It so demoralized the Christians who were there. There weren't even that many Christians there because the KGB had filled it up 
you know, with a lot of their people. So I think it was an overemphasis on, on steering away from the political. Also, the comment about Graham vis-a-vis -vis Kennedy as a Catholic, I think what we also recognize that there, a, an anti-Catholic position was very widespread still in 1960. Norman Vincent Peale, who was certainly not a particularly conservative Christian, opposed Kennedy because he was a Catholic, which led to one of Adlai Stevenson's great lines, I find Paul appealing and Peale appalling. <laughs> and even, I love that line. and one of the very significant events affecting African-American voters in that election was when Martin Luther King was arrested, Kennedy intervened, Nixon, whether because he personally didn't care or making what he thought was a smart political decision, didn't intervene, and King's father announced that he was now supporting Kennedy. He switched. He, he switched, leading Kennedy to remark to some of his friends. He didn't say it publicly. Imagine Martin Luther King's father, a bigot. And he said, but then he added, but then again, we all have fathers. Yeah. So, uh, and one other request, if anybody can help me on this. I'm serving as an advisor uh, to a Jewish museum. And one of the things we're working on is what has been the impact of Judaism on the world. I remember once reading somewhere, and I have not been able to find documentary evidence, that obviously slave owners wanted their slaves to be uh, Christians, but that there was, I remember reading this, I haven't seen evidence of it, that they actually had Bibles printed up for slaves in which the Bible was printed, but the book of Exodus was left out. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'd I've love to, that, yes. I want to get that on display I've, somewhere. I've heard that as well, because, I, and what's fascinating is how deeply important the book of Exodus is in every African-American church and how mm -hmm. central it is to African-American preaching for obvious reasons. Right. I mean, let my people go. I, it's, uh, but yes, that the, I've, I, I'm gonna try to remember where I have found this because I, there were very, um, the first slave owners tried to keep the slaves illiterate uh, and actually didn't want them reading the whole Bible because mm -hmm. the Bible is very dangerous. And there was often a tradition of one slave at least becoming literate. And the original African-American churches were in the woods. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were, and the slaves were very conscious of those parts of scripture uh, that pointed to the freedom. Um, and so I think in some cases they were limited Bibles, but in a lot of cases, the effort was to keep uh, the slaves illiterate so that they would only hear the parts, say, of St. Paul that said slaves, you know, obey your masters, and that's sort Which of was thing. the part that influenced Billy Graham when he spoke in, Mos spoke in, in Russia. Russia. Yeah. yeah. One Thank just you. quick point on this. Um, it's, it's worth noting that um, in the 1940s, I think it was 1947, the Christian Century, which was the liberal, like, publication arm of the Protestant world, uh, published a 14-part series worrying about Catholics in the country and whether, uh, and, and it ended up being a book by the editor of the, of the Christian Century called Can Protestantism Save America? Um, so there was like deep, deep worries across, not just in the conservative end of the Protestant world, but in the liberal end of the Protestant world. Well, it was said that anti-Catholicism was, 1947, anti-Catholicism yeah. was the anti-Semitism of the liberals. And what's fascinating about anti-Catholicism is it had two completely different strains, a right-wing strain uh, in conservative Protestantism and a left-wing strain that saw the Vatican, and you could find some old stuff in Vatican documents pre-Vatican II uh, that was pretty chilling to liberals. Uh, you know, there was a famous Catholic catechism 
that had the question, what is liberalism? Answer, liberalism is a sin. Uh, <laughs> and um, the, uh, it was Spanish, liberalismo es pegato. Um, and so, you know, Paul Blanchard was socialist, you know, who wrote uh, American Freedom and Catholic Power, so that there were these twin engines of anti-Catholicism uh, in the United States. We, we have to close, is that right? I want to tell my Southern Jewish story, if I may, because we've been very serious here, and uh, I always find this an upbeat story about, it just depends on what the lines of division are in a community. There's a gentleman who was the second father to me after my dad died. His name was Bert Yaffe. He grew up in Sparta, Georgia. Uh, his dad ran the only general store uh, in Sparta, Georgia. There was a great tradition of Southern Jews running the one store. Um, when Bert was a teenager, uh, the, and the big split among whites in southern towns was Baptist Methodist, and they couldn't stand each other. So when Bert was 16, he wanted to go out with a Methodist girl. Uh, and in order to do that, her parents made my friend uh, join the Epworth League. Uh, Bert, from the only Jewish family in Sparta, Georgia, proceeded to get elected president of the local Epworth League. Um, later, he and the Methodist girl broke up, and he wanted to go out with a Baptist girl. And as Bert told the story, they didn't give a damn that I was Jewish. What they couldn't stand is that I had been president of the Epworth League. <laughs> and I want to thank you all very, very much for being here. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you.